Our joy continues and our privilege continues this morning on this special Christmas Eve Sunday. We have the opportunity to briefly discuss the birth of Jesus this morning, which is an important doctrine in Scripture, obviously. It's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And there are many familiar verses that touch on this important doctrine, but today we are going to study a part of Scripture that is not necessarily considered a standard Christmas passage. You can join me there. It's Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Just to set the stage, since we're parachuting not only into this chapter, but into the entire book of Galatians here this morning. Keep in mind some general information about this book. It is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. This is the only letter like that that Paul wrote to a group of churches. Paul wrote the letter for a reason, to explain the gospel more fully And he chose that for a reason. It's because of some tragic things that were happening in the churches of Galatia. Some false teachers called Judaizers had infiltrated these churches at some level. And these Judaizers were bringing in some legalistic teaching. They were seeking to convince the Galatians that they needed to obey some of the Old Testament tenets of the Old Covenant of Judaism, such as circumcision, and perhaps other elements of the Old Testament Mosaic law, along with their faith in Christ, both together in order to be saved. In other words, these Judaizers were denying the truth of salvation by grace through faith alone. That was tragic, because no one is ever saved that way. No one is ever saved by any level of works, whether it's religious works or good deeds of some other kind. Salvation from sin is based upon the grace of God made available to people because of Christ, death, and resurrection. It is made available as a free gift, and this gift is received by faith, trust in Christ alone. So in Galatians, Paul seeks to draw a contrast in this book, a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, a contrast between the era of Moses and the era of Christ, the time of Christ, between what it means to live under the law versus what it means to live by faith. His point is this to the Galatians, for them to be back Under the old covenant, that would be putting themselves back in bondage to a system that was never meant to last forever. In fact, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 23, you find Paul saying this about the temporary nature of the Mosaic law. He says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. It's the picture of of a prison warden, really, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. But he also explained clearly, it's not that the law was bad. The law is good. In fact, it serves a very important purpose. He says it's that of a a teacher. That's in verse 24 of chapter 3. The law has become our tutor, our instructor, 
to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, saved by faith. So on one hand, for a time, the old covenant served an important purpose. It certainly taught people how to live a life that was separated unto God and what that meant. It taught them what it meant to serve and worship the Lord. But even more important, due to man's inability to fulfill all that, due to man's inability to perfectly live up to the law standards, the law was pointing people to their need for something else, their need for God's forgiveness by faith. So keep all that in mind. Keep this in mind as well as we go forward, that even though there's much discussion about the Old Testament law in this book, Paul was addressing both Jews and Gentiles in this letter. Now, specifically in our passage today, which is verses 4 and 5, we come to a focus on Christ Jesus coming into the world. That's verses 4 and 5. But verses 1, 2, and 3 set that up a little bit more. So it will be helpful to first understand what's said there before we look at our passage. In these opening verses... Paul is using an illustration that related to what he wants to say about now having faith in Jesus versus going back under the old covenant. And the illustration concerns the idea of a young son in their culture, a young son who was the heir, H-E-I-R, the heir in the family, the young son who was waiting to receive his inheritance. Here are verses 1, 2, and 3. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now the term here for child in verse 1 is better thought of in terms of our, of our word minor. He was a minor, M-I-N-O-R. In other words, in the analogy, this young man, he stood to receive an inheritance from his father, but he couldn't at the time because he was still a minor. The heir would have to wait till he came of age or he matured before getting the inheritance. Now, in the Roman culture, the time of coming to age, which was set actually by the law, was age 14, but the father could set a different time. He could set a different date as to when that heir would come of age. It was actually common for fathers to set the age of 18 as that date. So that's a big part of the analogy here is the father setting a date for something to happen and the state of the heir until that date came. So here in this analogy, this child, while he's a minor, he would be considered the legal heir while he was maturing toward that date that had been set. And as well, technically, he was considered, as verse 1 says, the owner of everything or the Lord or master of everything. In other words, on paper, we would say, he was the owner of everything. But he did not actually come into possession of the estate until it was time. So in practical experience, verse 1 tells you how he felt during all those years. He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In other words, he was no better off than a slave just in daily experience. And there was something else that added to him feeling that way. He was a minor who was in a type of bondage. Look at verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers or governors until the date set by the father. 
So while this young man was maturing toward that predetermined date, he would be under other people who took care of him. Those people would give oversight to the estate on his behalf. In fact, the guardians and managers had complete control of that child's life. He had to do everything, they said. So practically speaking, he had about as much liberty as a common slave. But it was all for his good. What seemed at times like bondage was necessary to bring him to that place of full maturity. And then at that time, he received status. And it was at a time that was in keeping with the date established by the Father. So this is an analogy that has a point. What's Paul's point? Well, the point is that the law and the old covenant played a similar role in the story of salvation. It was important. In God's plan. It was important in teaching God's people how to serve and worship Him. It was important in teaching them that they could never live up to its standards and that a real relationship with God was based upon faith, not external works. But that old covenant system was not meant by God to last forever. And it's in verse 3 then that we find the application to Christians. Verse 3 says, So also we. Likewise, while we were children, Under the old covenant, in other words, we were held in in a sense of bondage, a form of bondage under the elemental things of the world. Just as that child in the analogy, in a sense, was in bondage while he was abiding all the rules and regulations that were set up by the Father's will and carried out by the managers and so forth until the moment he came of age, so also God's people were in bondage to the elementary things of the world or the elementary principles until the time of the gospel came. Now that term elemental is a word that refers to something foundational or elementary. It was a term they would use to refer to the the initial letters of the alphabet, what we say sometimes, the ABCs of something. When we say that, we're just learning the ABCs. We mean that we're learning the, the elementary forms of teaching, the elementary things. So in the context of this passage, Paul is using that description as a way to refer to the time under the Old Covenant. It was the ABCs of God's plan. It had its place. But what we find under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the rules and regulations of the Mosaic Law, the initial ABCs of what it meant to have a relationship with God, was not God's final plan. So Paul's making the point that the law, the ABCs of biblical religion, created a form of bondage, especially if someone began to think that obedience to those rules and regulations is what ensured their relationship with God. It was just impossible to perfectly obey it, and God's standard is perfect obedience. There's a verse in James chapter 2 that reminds us of something very sobering. James 2 verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all of it. That's a problem. And the problem is compounded by the reality that any disobedience brings a person under something else related to the law, the curse of the law, which means the law's requirement for judgment. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
What a problem. All this is why later in our chapter, if you look ahead to verse 9, we find this warning to the believers in Galatia. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back? Why would you want to do that? Again, to the weak and worthless ABCs to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Something else to recognize is that even in the Gentile world and in their pagan religions, they had their ABCs. They had the elementary principles, the philosophies, teachings of the world. So in Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive. He's writing to believers. No one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, the the perspectives of the world according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. God's people are to avoid deceptive human tradition and philosophy. At the very best, they're just elementary. So here's a way to summarize Paul's point. You could say that the elemental things of the world refers to the elementary teachings, the ABCs of teaching of religion of any kind, ultimately, to any attempts to achieve acceptance by God that involve a rules and regulations approach. And yes, for the Jew, the rules and regulations of the Mosaic law, that's what they were enslaved to. But the Gentiles were just as enslaved to pagan idolatry, constantly trying to appease their own pagan deities. So the point genuinely can be applied to both the Jew and the Gentile in those Galatian churches. Both groups would be returning to a form of bondage if they fell back into observing rules and regulations. Instead of doing that, they should see themselves as in the same state as that heir in the analogy. Once the heir was released from the external oversight of the managers, released from his so-called bondage, it's because he was now grown up. He had matured. And that is true for God's people in God's plan of salvation. God intervened in history to bring the new age of the gospel. And thus, he released his people from bondage to elemental things. He brought them into the age of maturity. And that is what our passage is about today the amazing nature of God's intervention in history and to what it means to be in this age of maturity and to let go of elementary things. It all centers on Jesus and when he came into the world, born as a baby, and then growing up to the point that he offered himself in death upon the cross to pay for man's sin. So let's note together this wonderful look at Jesus, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now this morning, we're going to see that this passage gives us some important reasons of why we should marvel at God's intervention at this time of year in the Christmas season, frankly, why we should marvel at Jesus' coming to earth every day. Here's reason number one. It happened at a particular time. 
Verse 4 again. But when the fullness of the time came, so man was unable to save himself through adherence to all the religious do's and don'ts, but, there's that contrasting term, but God did something. Man couldn't solve the problem, but God did something to solve the problem, and he did it in what's called the fullness of the time. Go back to the analogy. The father had set a time for the son's coming of age. Likewise, God had an appointed time. God the father sent forth his son at that time. Now, you can try to understand why it was the right time from various perspectives. You can look at it from a practical perspective and a political perspective. Practically speaking, it was a good time. Alexander the Great had brought a lot of change into the world. He had established the Greek culture and language, Greek languages throughout the world. There was a common language, therefore, by which the gospel could be preached, and it was. Rome had brought about peace in most of the world. Perhaps you've read of what it's called, the Pax Romana, Roman peace. Plus, the Romans had built a lot of good roads everywhere, so the early preachers and teachers and apostles, they'd be able to travel easily. That's from a practical and political perspective. It was a good time. You could say from a religious perspective, it was a good time because the ABCs of the Old Covenant had fully accomplished everything they were supposed to accomplish, that of showing man his utter sinfulness, that of showing man that sin is rebellion against the authority of God. And the law had confirmed man's inability to do anything about it, man's inability to live up to God's perfect standard. The law had shown man his need for a Savior. It was even a good time for the Gentiles. They were weary of their bondage to the old pagan gods. The point is, all were weighed down. People were weighed down by sin, weighed down by the fear and the inevitability of death, and weighed down by the prospect of future judgment appearing before the creator of the world to give an account. So yes, God sent forth his son at just the right time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, but the most important perspective is not the practical or political or religious perspective. It's the heavenly perspective. It was the time chosen in God's eternal sovereign mind. He set the time. God the Father the Lord of all eternity, the one who's in time and out of time all at the same time, the one who literally holds time in his hands, he had ordained the timing. And when Jesus was here on earth ministering, he knew that. He knew it was the time. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, and here's what he said, the time is fulfilled. It's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe the gospel, he told them. Now, something something important is applied, though, in that little idea of being sent. The Father sent the Son. That simple term testifies to the pre-existence of the Son. If he was sent forth, think about it, then he existed before he was born in Bethlehem. And that is the fact. Jesus was not sent from some other earthly country. Jesus was sent from heaven. And his sending from heaven even declares something else. It confirms his divine nature, his deity, as does calling him the Son, the second person of the Godhead. 
He's the one who lived with the Father in glory from all eternity past. He's the one who's fully equal to the Father in essence and glory and power. Listen to all these verses that we learned when we studied through the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, that means Jesus, and the Word was with God. Beyond that, the Word was God. John 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. He's not just the only begotten Son, He's the begotten God. In the bosom of the Father, He's explained that. John 5, 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Listen, the Jews understood that Jesus was proclaiming that I'm God. That's what he was saying. They got it. And they were trying to kill him. Why? He was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There's that expression God used back in Exodus when he spoke to Abraham and said, This is who I am, my name, I am. That's who I am. Jesus said, I am. In John 17, he's praying to the Father in his humanity, praying to the Father, and he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Divine glory. It's not just John, the Apostle Paul who wrote this book to the Galatian churches. He understood the preexistence of Christ. He affirmed the deity of Christ. Listen to some other verses. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Although he existed in the form of God... He did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself, not of his divinity, but of all the prerogatives of that and the glory associated with that, and he took the form of a bondservant, meaning he was made in the likeness of men. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he's the image of the invisible God who created everything. Well, by him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God does that. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Titus 2.13, We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And one more from a different writer, the author of Hebrews. I read it this morning in our passage, Hebrews 1.3. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. So back to our text. When the God-appointed time came, the eternal, divine Son of God came from heaven into this world. This is such a momentous event that it is right to divide history by it. It is right to think of history in terms of B.C., before Christ, And then A.D., the year of the Lord, from then on, though the world has tried to do away from those designations. It is right to think of it that way. It is right to think as the coming of Christ into the world as the very hinge of history. We should marvel at that. We should marvel at the birth of Jesus for the second reason, number two. It happened in a particular manner. And that thought is developed here in the text by these two crucial facts that are given to us about Jesus. Here's one. He took on human nature. And we find that in verse 4 where it says he was born of a woman. 
Now that is not directly a reference to the virgin birth. Paul was familiar with the virgin birth and affirmed it, but that's just not his point here. This was a way of confirming the humanity of Christ. In fact, it is an Old Testament expression as well. You find it in Job chapter 14, verse 1. Man who's born of woman, that's every person, every person is born of woman, is short-lived and full of turmoil. That's true too. Short-lived and full of turmoil. So this is important. Jesus is the God-man. He is the only one we can say this about. One person in two natures, having both a divine nature and a human nature. God the Son took on our flesh, our human nature. So think about the birth of Jesus. What a lot of paintings and stories and movies do to it, presenting it as some sort of just this incredible special thing it was, but they leave out the fact that it was just a normal human birth in many respects. There was a mother who carried a baby. There was a process of labor that began, and she felt that. There are some of those out there in the realm of heresy that have tried to say that Mary felt no pain at all when she delivered Jesus. It was just miraculous. She felt it. It was a normal labor. It was a normal delivery. And all of that was foretold in the very beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis 3, verse 15, what we call the first expression of the gospel. When the curses are being pronounced on Satan and the man and the woman, Genesis 3, 15 says this, God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity, a wall, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, meaning all her descendants, but even more particularly, her special seed that would come, this one born of a woman, the Lord Jesus. And Satan would cause Jesus a lot of trouble, bruise him on the heel, as it were, but it was prophesied there in Genesis that, yes, but Jesus would deal a death blow to Satan, bruise him on the head. So Jesus came, and he grew up in his earthly life, and as he did that, he experienced the temptations and aggravations that go along with living in this fallen world. He experienced the fears and the trials that are common to all human beings. In fact, we have that great statement in Hebrews 4 about him being our high priest. And it's great that he's our high priest because verse 15 says, he's one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Not tempted necessarily in every single individual temptation, but tempted in all the major categories of what temptation could be. He felt it and never sinned. So on one hand, he was sent forth, the eternal divine son, fully God, and at the same time, fully man. As John 1.14 says, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a very important phrase. He was sent forth. That definitely makes the birth of Christ very special. You can't say that about any other baby, but on the other hand, it was a common birth, born of a woman. Then the text adds another fact about Jesus. He not only took on human nature, but second, he took on human obedience. He embraced the required obedience to the law required of humans. That's what it means by verse 4 saying he was born under the law. That first of all means he was Jewish. He was born as a Jew 
obligated to obey the law, he was circumcised as the law demanded, circumcised on the eighth day. He followed all the prescribed patterns in the Old Testament for worship. He went to Jerusalem. He kept the feast. He observed Passover. He kept the law in its entirety, and he did it perfectly, never breaking in thought or action or motivation even one of the Ten Commandments. He's the only one we can say that about. He's born a Jew, obligated to obey the law, but second, he even died under the law. You see, the law requires something. He bore the law's penalty, the required penalty, when he died on the cross. The law demands justice for failure against, against it. It demands divine wrath over sin. All that was satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross, it was all poured out on him. He embraced that, obeying the law, dying under the law, accepting the death penalty that was deserved by his people. Another way to say it, when Christ was born under the law, he came under its curse. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. And that leads to the third reason Jesus' birth is so amazing and why we should marvel at God's plan and his intervention in the world through Jesus. Number three, it happened for a particular purpose. And in our text, there's two aspects to this purpose, two different sides to it. And each one is introduced in the Greek language with the same little Greek connector that should be translated something like so that or that. So here's one purpose, one aspect of his purpose for coming. It was to bring us a new liberty. Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That language of redemption refers to Christ's atoning death on the cross. Now, Paul has already mentioned it in Galatians. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 4. He put it in different words there, though. In Galatians 1, verse 4, it says, Jesus gave himself for our sins so he might rescue us from this present evil age. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks, that this is a world of darkness, intellectual darkness, because it redefines truth and can't find the truth and ignores the truth and rejects the truth. It's in darkness intellectually. It's in darkness morally because of its love for sin. Jesus rescues people out of that darkness. That's wonderful. But it was more than rescue. Our verse today says it was an act of redemption. Now, in the world of Paul's day, this idea of redemption applied to slaves. If someone was able and willing, they had the money and the willingness, they could pay a price and set a slave free, purchase his freedom, redeem him. And that is precisely what Christ did for his people. He redeemed us. We were in slavery, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and to the ABCs of religion, enslaved to sin, enslaved to a legalistic approach to a relationship with God, which is, which is a killer of true spirituality. And Jesus paid the price for our liberty. And the price he paid was the ultimate price, his death on the cross. So it is right to say that when God sent his son into the world, Christ was born to die. We need to remember that. We celebrate the incarnation. That's a great doctrine, important doctrine. But you've got to remember this. Christ did not redeem us by his birth alone. 
Christ did not redeem us by his life alone. He redeemed us through his death. We're condemned by God's perfect law because we can't perfectly keep it. Hopeless, therefore. But God provided the solution, his own son, to pay the price of our failure so that we can have liberty and raise him from the dead to show that the price was sufficient. It's essentially the same thought in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Or he says it in different terms in Romans 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus did all that for us. He brought us a new liberty. And that all connects again with what we pointed out about the two natures of Christ. He had to be the God-man to redeem us, to die on the cross, to redeem us from our sin and our and slavery to the elementary things even. He had to be perfect God and perfect man. He had to be God, divine, in order to be able to give a sacrifice that had infinite value. And he had to become a human because it's humans who sin that he redeemed. And he had to be a perfect human without sinning because a person who has sinned can't bear the penalty for himself or for anyone else. The Redeemer was the God-man, the sinless man. It's only what the God-man could accomplish, only what the divine Son was capable of doing. And he did it, and it brought us a new liberty, but it brought us something else. Second, he died to bring us a new identity. And we find it captured in this little phrase in verse 5, wonderful words. He died for this reason so that we might receive the adoption as sons, meaning sons and daughters. What a thought. He gives us the status of sonship. He gives that to someone who's not his natural child. That's what adoption means. And the point here is that God does that when he saves a sinner from their sin. We're not naturally the children of God. We're not all the children of God. We become his sons and daughters this way, by adoption. And this adoption gives his children then this special dignity and status because now they have membership in the family. I love this quote by William Perkins, the son of God was made the son of man, that we who are the sons of men might be made the sons of God. Get what's being said here. It's so amazing. Yes, we were rescued. That's wonderful. But the Bible doesn't stop there. We were also redeemed from bondage, so we have liberty. But it doesn't stop there. God went so far as to placing us into his family as full-grown, mature sons and daughters. All an act of God's grace, totally undeserved, totally unearned. So let me make a political comment here. We hear a lot about inclusiveness in our world today. Well, I'm here to say that we as Christians do believe in a certain inclusiveness or inclusivity. The problem is that the world distorts the right understanding of it. 
But at the same time, we also affirm something the world does not like, and that is we affirm a certain exclusivity. We affirm both inclusivity and exclusivity. Inclusivity, here's what we affirm. It doesn't matter which of the two genders you are. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your social status is, your financial status, your educational status. The gospel is inclusive in that it is the message for every person. And anyone who turns in repentance and faith to Christ can be rescued, redeemed, and then adopted into the same family. But we affirm exclusivity. All of this is possible exclusively and only through Christ. That's a right view of Jesus. The God-man who came at a particular time, in a particular manner, born out of a woman as a human, born under the law, obeying the law, to bring us a new liberty and new identity. That's Jesus and I was thinking about those important facts about Jesus this week when I read just two or three days ago, I read an article online about a new kind of so-called churches that are popping up, popping up, so-called. They don't even call them churches anymore. They don't like that word. They're called spiritual communities where people can come and just express their spirituality with no, no guidelines really. In fact, Scripture in these spiritual communities, Scripture is not the authority. They will read from Scripture in their services. They'll also read from writings of Buddha and, and other people. And they do believe in Jesus, but here's what they say about Jesus. This is a quote from the article from one of their pastors. Jesus can be a Savior, or He can be a radical rabbi, or He can be just a metaphor if you want depending on what your spiritual inclination and needs are. No, there is a real biblical Jesus, and He is God, and He took on human flesh, and He died to satisfy the holy justice of God the Father in order to bring His people a new liberty and to give them a new identity. We should be pondering these marvelous truths that we've just studied, certainly at Christmas, but every day. But in addition to that, let me just leave you with some practical reminders in closing today. Here's reminder number one. We don't live by a rules and regulations approach. That's not the Christian walk with following Jesus. The coming of Christ put an end to all that. It put an end to all the Old Testament food laws. People try to bring those up sometimes as if they still apply to us. And, and the, ho the holidays, the Sabbaths, and, and so forth. Here's what Colossians 2, 16 and 17 say. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food, drink, respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, they had their purpose. But that's the ABCs. The substance belongs to Christ. We live... By walking in the Spirit as we depend on the Spirit to enable us to obey the timeless principles of His Word so we live a life to His glory and a life that pleases Him.
not by rules and regulations. Legalism is a deadly gangrene in a person's life and in a church. Reminder number two, knowledge of our adoption should prompt joy in our obedience. There's a real tension here, you see. We do serve the Lord out of a sense of duty. I mean, we sense an obligation. In fact, it is right to, in one sense to say that we're slaves of the Lord. The New Testament uses that term doulos, sometimes translated servant or bondservant. It means slave. We've been bought with a price. We no longer own ourselves. That's all true. But it's not out of just duty alone because Christianity is not a bondage. It's a freedom. We've been brought from slavery into sonship. We are in a family in which God eternally loves his sons and daughters, and nothing will change that love. And our ongoing membership in God's family doesn't depend on our works. As if somehow we had to still earn our keep somehow and earn God's ongoing love somehow. No. What's sad is that even after we are adopted, we can sometimes forget all this and not think in these terms. We can sometimes forget our Father's eternal love. We start thinking of ourselves only one way, only as slaves who serve out of a sense of duty as opposed to being sons as well who choose to serve and fulfill their duties. There's a difference. I love this hymn from William Cooper, that is how you pronounce it, I think. One of his hymns, many hymns, ends with this stanza. I love this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to see it that way, and to hear his pardoning voice for us, changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. So yes, we sense our duty and we joyfully, willingly go about trying to please the Lord. If we understand our adoption. Lastly, reminder number three, Christmas should prompt thoughts of the Lord's future return. Now, we sang about all this earlier. This is something we should also rejoice in at Christmas. We're contemplating His first coming into history. That's something we should contemplate every day of our lives. But just as God the Father predetermined and appointed a time for the first coming, He has predetermined and set a time for the second coming. It is set, it is appointed in His own eternal mind, and nothing will change it. Nothing will speed it up, nothing will slow it down. But there is a difference between His second coming and His first. The first time He came born of a woman under the law, He came in humility clothed in human flesh, his eternal glory veiled so that no one really recognized him. When he comes again, that won't happen. He'll come in power. He'll come in glory. He'll come with judgment on those who have scorned him or ignored him. They'll come, he'll come in judgment on those who failed to joyfully bow the knee to his lordship. We find a little glimpse of that coming in Revelation 19, 15 through 16. At that future time, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I trust that you will enjoy 
pondering and looking back on Jesus' first coming into this world. But it's the future coming, the second coming, that causes us to look forward to the future with great expectation and confidence because that's when all wrongs in this world will be righted. It will not happen until then. That's when there's going to be vindication for the church. There's going to be vindication for his people. There's going to be vindication of the gospel message that we proclaim in this world. That's why Scripture tells us live our lives in light of the knowledge of that, of his return. And that knowledge helps motivate us to holy living, to having joy even in the midst of our current trials because it reminds us that the trials are only part of this temporary world. It motivates us to confident and bold living, even though apostasy is increasing all around us. It motivates us to zealous proclamation of the gospel so that others can come to know Christ before it's too late. Celebrate His second coming this Christmas season as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a holy, righteous God, but we thank You that You're a saving God. Thank You that You intervened in history at your appointed time, so that we could be rescued, so that we could be saved, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could have new liberty and joy and a new identity. Thank you that we don't have to be searching for an identity. We're sons and daughters of the King. May we live up to that privilege in a way that pleases you. I do pray for anyone here that can't say, I've come to that place as well where the Lord has adopted me because I came to a place of faith and repentance, putting my faith and trust in Christ alone to follow Him as my Lord. I've come to that place in my life. If they can't say that, Lord, may you open their hearts, give them the humility necessary to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. In Christ's name, amen.